0: Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design. We're really thrilled to be joined by Paige Hodsman. She's acoustic specialist in office design. What that is exactly, she's going to explain to us, and this is it's such a lot involved in it that this is the first in the series. So if you're listening to this, I, I recommend that you bookmark the podcast or go to the journal of and sign up for the newsletter. Um, but she's concept developer for offices in the UK and Ireland for Sangoban Ecophone. Um, her background is commercial interior design she, and specialising, as I said, in workplace, environment and acoustics. I'm going to let Paige explain what she does. But Paige, many thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, Thank you, Vanessa. It's really nice to be here. And it's such an exciting subject. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to coming back and delving deeper into the subject. So a little bit about my background. So as, as you mentioned, I have a background in commercial interior design, um, sustainable construction, And over the last eight eight to 10 years or so, I've been focused on this subject of understanding how human beings respond to sound stimulus in in office environments. So uh, uh, trying to understand how can what can we learn from the science? What can we learn? What, what type of research can we get involved with and, and, and kind of push the limits on to better understand how sound in offices are affecting us, our health, our well being, and, and related to our performance? So and and part of that also um, is is uh, looking at the psychological the psychological processing of auditory stimulus and the psychological side of, of, of how we perceive sound essentially. Great. I mean, obviously we we've spoken
0: before about psychoacoustics and psychophysics and things. Can you explain mm-hmm. what that what that what they are, what those terms refer to, please?
1: A lot of the, uh, a lot of the work and the literature and the emphasis that we, meaning Echophone, have placed on, um, on this, on this, this subject, is centered on that term psychoacoustics. And I think that, uh, yeah, it does, it does deserve uh, more, but a little bit more clarification. So psychoacoustics is a science in its own, in its own right, and this is the study of sound perception psychological and physiological responses that um, are in the brain and in the body that are associated with sound. So essentially psychoacoustics is how we hear. Okay. So what happens inside the body? How do we actually hear? And it's part of the subject over the science of psychophysics, where psychophysics, as as the term implies, it's psychological and the physical, the physics side of things. So psychophysics is is, um, really more about the the physical world and and the stimulus from the physical world and then how that produces responses in the body. So it's kind of a, I mean, you can imagine these subjects are vast, both of them are vast. So psychophysics. We're going to you can we look at how the the materials in a, in an environment and let's say for example with the with a sound wave how a sound wave beh- behaves, and what happens in that environment, and then and then when it enters into the 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 ear, uh, what effect does that have on on the, the the human mind and body and body and then more psychoacoustics is really more specifically looking at how do how do we actually hear as a human as, as human beings what happens um how is that processed so what happens inside the ear what's happening with the sound wave that's created so you have a mechanical wave that then isn't that is in thats that then becomes electrical impulses that feed through the nervous system so there are subjects that they, they they go together and we certainly, the work that we do, we, we look at both of them and we generally refer to it as psychoacoustics, but it is important, I think, to make that distinction
0: okay and so, so why is it important i mean why is the study important i mean obviously we, we you're i know you're passionate about biophilic design
1: so um why why is the study of this important so uh, if we could take it just from from an office context let's just yeah. take it from a design a, a design perspective and, and looking at the way that we design offices so to to understand um you know the psychophysics the psychoacoustic aspect of what's actually happening This is paramount because this is is helping us to understand how people people are responding Mm -hmm. to what's actually happening in their environment. And we need to know this because that's how we actually make uh, our spaces, uh, how how we design better spaces. Mm -hmm. So we have to understand that on a basic level, we have to understand, well how do people actually perceive sound? How do we perceive it? And what why does it why does someone talking over in that corner uh, distract some people and not others? Mm-hmm. Why does that happen? And what are the implications? What are the implications on our health, our well-being? Uh, what are the implications of the performance of the organization? And for so long in the world of office design, if you will, we, we've placed a big emphasis on the the, the the physics. So the numbers, if you will, the, the, the quantitative aspects of what actually happens in a room when a sound wave is created or when a sound is created, how is that sound wave behaving in the space? So it might hit a desk, it might hit a wall, it might hit glass. How do we describe that? And so from a physics perspective, we've been able to do that really well. In fact, a lot of the acousticians um, have fantastic models that can tell us how that sound wave is going to behave in the space. But once it gets inside of us, inside our brains and our body, that's a whole different story. Mm. That's a whole different story. And because we're so different, and as as human beings, we're constantly changing. And so uh, when I say constantly changing, meaning our perceptions, the way you perceive those sounds, fundamentally, the pathways that it travels in in, in the body and in the brain might be the same. But the way it's interpreted, your perception of it, it, it could potentially be completely different than mine. And these are the things that we have to start to understand. But and, and from a biophilic um, um, perspective too, I think a couple of, of, of important points to consider is that generally speaking, our, our senses, so we think of the five primary senses, so our sense of sight, smell, taste, our hearing, our sense of touch, they're really driven um, as, um, and, and uh, the response is really about survival for the most part. Right, and so then we start to think about survival, and the vast majority of human existence has been outside. So then this starts to link us to the biophilic elements, nature and why nature is important. And our auditory systems function um, so that we can actually perceive the sounds, the the research around um, the perceptions of sounds related to the natural environment. There's some good research on that particular subject. And we are, the, the the auditory cortex, if you will, and the and and the, the 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 sort of the response to sound stimulus, is particularly good and particularly responsive around natural sounds. So this is, is fairly well documented. Now, there's also something else I think is is um, is is important um, uh, to keep in mind. It, a lot of the research that's done up to this point on on auditory processing has been on pure tones, right? So just simple stimuli. Um, And this is, you know, it's widely used in research, laboratory uh, um, uh, settings, um, a lot of it's done on uh, primates, or so not not human beings per se. I mean, you talk about auditory processing
0: in primates and, and things. Can you explain? Do we so we do we know much what you know what, what happens in our brains, in human brains, or in human this sort of auditory processing there?
1: Yeah. So now this is an interesting this is an interesting point, and I think it actually helps us to I think it helps us to understand why in design. The subject of acoustics has a tendency to um, uh, not probably get the attention that it deserves. We don't really, I say we, I mean the the, the science, if you will. So Mm -hmm. the people who are studying actually psychoacoustics and how the brain processes sound, it's not fully understood how the brain, so the auditory cortex part of the brain, how it actually evaluates sounds. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Uh, if you, it, it, our, our ears are, um, uh, are capable of picking up on frequencies from 20 to 20,000 Hertz, right? In Hertz is a, is a cycle per second. So that's a, that's a fairly wide range of, of, um, of a frequency in which to hear. And the sounds that, that we hear are going to be made up of those frequencies, right? So when you're in a complex sound environment, let's just say you're in a, uh, you're in a, in a busy cafe. Um, You've got lots of different sounds coming from all different types of directions, and they're made up of sounds within that frequency, because that's what we can hear. And yet, we're capable, meaning human beings, we're capable of hearing what's being said with the person that we might be communicating with right in front of us, We can simultaneously, we can hear the clanking of the sounds of of maybe what might be going on in the kitchen. And then if someone calls our name from behind us, we're able to pick up on that as well. How this is possible, this particular, this kind of unique ability to, uh, to, to hone in on very complex aspects of sound frequencies that are often and sounds that are often made up of the same frequencies that's something that's not it's not really fully understood um, and it's different than vision uh, and so when we think about vision uh, there's uh, vision has a uh, has a central pathway so when we see there's a there's a, a pretty much a direct pathway in the brain to the visual cortex in the auditory system, there's multiple pathways. So it makes it a lot harder to study. It makes it a lot harder to understand what's happening. We know a lot about vision and, um, and, and much of that is because of the, um, the discovery, if you will, that, um, that, that vision and the neurons respond very much to context. So, you know, you're a photographer and, and, and you're into art, so you understand that a lot of that is about context and that, you know, that, that's one of the primary aspects of how we see. With that understanding, um, that gave us kind of a, a, you know, the, the premise for, for the studies around the, the, the visual processing. Mm-hmm. We don't have that with auditory. We haven't found that, that sort of, that, that real link or that real basis for understanding how we actually hear yeah. So, we've got a we've, we 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 have a, a, a pretty good understanding of what happens, obviously, but fundamentally the the um, the mechanisms that give us that ability to discern uh, sounds that are essentially made up of the same frequencies, we uh, but yet we can we can quickly hone in on on what might be important and what might not be important. We don't we don't really understand that. Just mm. yet, I'd say we. I mean, in this, in in the world, and in scientific yeah. community, that's not yeah. fully understood. Um, but they, do, we do know that um, natural sounds are better at eliciting responses okay. from the neurons, right? So the neuronal activity uh, that response is greater when we hear natural sounds, and so this is this is where there's a little bit of a of of, of a I guess a gap in some of the research too, because a lot of the research uh, that's been done, although it's changing, a lot of the research is just using a pure tone, right? Just a simple stimulus and then watching what happens in the brain. Okay, okay? following that. That's good because that gives some indication, but but these complex sounds, like I mentioned the example of being in a cafe, these complex sounds, that's much more difficult. That's much more difficult to, to really map. So there's the the perception or the the actual hearing, right? Of a sound wave that travels from the outer ear through the ear canal, um, through the eardrum, to the ossicles, um, into the cochlea. And then within the cochlea is where the little hairs lie. And those little hairs are what pick up on those frequencies from 20 to 20,000. Okay, so those hairs are picking up on the different frequencies and then that information is is transferred into the auditory nerve and that auditory nerve goes to the auditory cortex. And then that information is fed up into the higher parts of the brain where we have knowledge and memory. And that's what gives us perception. So it's this sort of complex interplay of a a sound wave from when we hear it up into the brain to where we actually perceive it. Um, And and it's... um, I think that the problem is, is that we, when it comes to what we're actually analyzing, yeah. so a pure tone is going to have one response, mm-hmm. but complex sounds or sounds of nature that's going to elicit an entirely different response, mm-hmm. and so without a full understanding of how this, how this really works, um, and how that auditory cortex performs its function it's actually difficult to formulate the right kind of questions as well
0: yeah exactly yeah i so mean it's really say it's, it's really interesting as you say like you know language how we can recognize the fact that someone's calling our name amongst all the cacophony and the things that we're focusing on yeah. and that internal conversation that we're having inside our brain about the things that we've got to do or we're worried about something mm. we still mm. pick up um you know uh, triggers I suppose to to responses in us I mean I mean I I would love to get you back and I think one of the things we would love to I'd love to discuss actually is the benefits of nature sounds specifically on our minds and our brains and on us and how that works and and I think that that deserves you know its own its own podcast and its complete thing I mean this is really to kind of give a, a real basic Level. I mean, no one can have the same amount of knowledge that you've got and that you've studied, but just give us a a kind of an idea. I mean, can you explain, I mean, you sort of touched on now, but can you explain what happens actually in our brains or in the sort of process when we're exposed to noisy environments? So say for Mm. instance, we're in a um, you know, we're in an in an office, and you know we're working on something. We might be having a conversation with somebody. Someone else is talking. You know, this photocopy is going. The, the trolley is wheeling past us. Can you explain? Yeah. You know, what's going on? I mean, might there might be somebody else I'm on call over there? And the window cleaners outside doing the windows. It's like a sort of crazy amount of stuff that's going on. What what yeah. what's actually happening to us? well that's
1: a a big question (laughs) (laughs) yeah in two (laughs) minutes yeah i think i think uh so so what's actually happening so um i think first and foremost we have to remember that every one of us is different yeah okay so so biologically the functioning is similar Mm -hmm. um but the interpretation yeah the, interpretation, that, the actual perception I mentioned earlier about the memory and the knowledge. So when the signal uh, then reaches the part of the brain where knowledge and memory are applied, that's gonna be different for every single one of us yeah. because we have innate and we also have environmental aspects that will shape the way that we perceive different sounds. Yeah. So we have to always keep that in mind. So in an office environment, Um, We're trying to do a number of things, aren't we? And I think this is where the complexity and when you're trying to design for um, for offices in particular, it's trying to hone in on on just one thing or trying to say that uh, if we could just find that that sort of golden formula (laughs) and then we'll and then we can design it that way. It just doesn't work that way. Because yeah. we're dealing with people, and yeah. this is why uh, you know quantitative approaches. So the numbers are important, yeah. but the numbers don't tell us everything. Mm-hmm. So we can't just rely on number data, because it's it's not it's not actually going to give us a workable solution. It gives mm-hmm. us insight, yeah. but not a workable solution. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, what's actually happening in an office environment? Uh, and it depends on the person and their particular sensitivities. We're say for example we're trying to work on a on a on a task to concentrate, um, and I'm, and I've got a deadline. Okay, so I've got I've got a, uh, um, I've got a lot of of, of um, neural stimulus going on, okay, mm-hmm. because I'm concentrating. It's complex task, that sort of thing. Uh, then simultaneously, I have someone talking. Over here to my left, and it's also important to remember that we are particularly tuned to the speech frequencies. Okay. So, do you remember when I mentioned earlier that the senses essentially uh, are are uh, they respond usually um, as something having to do with survival? Okay. That's the way that our that's the way that our our senses that's that that's the whole point of the way we evolved, if you will. So yeah. it's about survival. So hearing other people is an essential part of our survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't. The, there's there's some uh, some decent research talking about the habituation. So our ability to habituate to human voices. So habitu- habituation meaning that we that um, that we eventually reach a state where we don't. We, it doesn't. It doesn't register. It doesn't register cognitively um, in, in in our in our brains. Yeah. So. We can't habituate, the evidence is suggesting to us that we can't habituate to human speech. Mm-hmm. And the survival driver for that is that we have to hear each other. We have to be able to hear the tones. We have to be able to hear the inflection because mm-hmm. someone might be saying something that means we need to run <laughs> or we need to be really quiet. Yeah. So we have to think about it from, survival, from a survival perspective. So that being said, we don't turn off human speech.
0: Okay.
1: Sometimes it's helpful. Yeah. We're going to hear it. Sometimes it's helpful. It might be something that's useful to what we're doing. But if I'm working on a piece of, if I'm working on a complex task, I have to get this done. I have a deadline. I'm concentrating. I've got lots of psychological pressure behind what I'm doing. And then someone starts talking about their weekend that has no relevance to what I'm doing. This is where we, this is unwanted speech. It's clearly understood, it's unwanted. Mm -hmm. Then this becomes a distraction. Mm -hmm. It's actually distracting me from trying to do what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's of interest to us, (laughs) it can be even more problematic. (laughs) Um, If it's not of interest, it then can elicit all types of other emotions where we can even start to get angry because of it. So it it just depends on the context. so I think that it's 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 understanding these fundamentals you asked earlier about why is it important? Mm. Well, it's really important to understand what drives the sensory response in the first place. Yeah. And those drivers are survival.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, are we safe or not? Are we going to have to stand and fight something or are we going to have to run? And, and also, it's important to remember, too, that the way that that, that uh, we, we receive and interpret that stimuli first, that's what we're assessing. We're assessing with our auditory with the auditory stimulus whether we're safe or not yeah um and what we might have to do to respond to it yeah i mean obviously yeah,
0: yeah i was gonna say sort of like we you know we're sort of sensory overload with it with the acoustic overload i mean what's the sort of negative um aspects to it i mean obviously if we're trying to get onto a task we didn't we we you know the, the, the actual practical thing of like we're not going to get the job done we might get the sack yeah <laughs> so yeah totally. Yeah. that there's an economic and, and sort of emotional and all that kind of bite sort of thing but um sort of in terms of sort of acoustics or you know the psychological side of things with the psycho, what's um what are the short-term issues and maybe the long-term issues that people might suffer as a result of um having a you know a noisy or cacophonous environment in the, in the workplace
1: well you see this is um it's kind of a hard question
0: yeah
1: <laughs> um you know why it's hard question hmm. probably just as i don't know if this uh, it, it's a hard question because real good long-term research on in an office long-term exposure to low-level sounds that you get in an office. Yeah. There's not a lot, there's not a lot of research on that. So, so what happens is we can we can look at studies that tell us uh, what the psychological or what the long-term maybe the health and well-being aspects of exposure to low levels of of, of uh, or low levels of so low level sound stimulus. Over time, does have a stress effect. Okay. There is a stress effect there. There's also this interconnectedness with the sounds that we hear and our associations with fear. This is another topic for another time. But this is really cool because we've got in a, in a in a workplace setting. Uh, we have to do our job. There's a lot of pressure. There's there's a lot of anxiety in an office environment already. And this is this is particularly so based on the culture of the organization that we're in, right? Yeah. So if you have a culture of fear, <laughs> and then you're adding the, the, the low-level uh, sounds that are created in an office over time, mm-hmm. coupled with someone that is particularly sensitive to auditory stimulus, So, and this is some of the work that we've done looking at personality types and sensory sensitivities. So say you have an introvert and somebody who's a bit more neurotic, um, a heightened auditory sensitivity, those usually go together by the way. So the relationship is there Um, and and a stress environment. Say you have a culture within the organization where people are afraid, they're afraid they're gonna lose their job if they don't get their work done. It's all of these components that stack onto one another. So it isn't just one thing that has to be looked at. It's all of these components that come together that can then affect the health and well being of the individual. Um, and, and I think that uh, it, it's uh, being able to, to control the sound stimulus from a very basic perspective. So, for example, um, soften the environment a bit so that we're not creating really harsh sounds. Because one of the things that we know is that uh, that harsh, startling sounds or lots of reflections disorient us.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. That's triggering that. That's triggering that response in the brain that says oh, something might be wrong. Okay. Something might be wrong. We have to eliminate that. We don't we don't need that in the workplace, and so this is where the specification of certain materials and those that and, and 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 that very practical aspect of design comes into play. Those things we we don't want to do. And remember, one of the things that we do know a lot about. With regards to the auditory processing, is where in the brain um, and our ability, or for the auditory ability, to tell us where we are and, and where sounds are actually where sounds are coming from. That's super important. We have to be able to say ah, that sound came from over there. Yeah. Okay, that's safe. That sound came from over there. Ooh, that's not safe. We need to we need to be able to do that when we have lots of reflective surfaces in a space this compromises that ability. And we don't wanna do that because that that adds stress to a situation. And then coupled with everything that I said previously, the culture of the organization, the complexity of the work that we're trying to do, the individual, who that individual is from a psychological and physiological perspective, all these things compound, um, and, and we have to, you know, the, we have to pay attention to these sorts of things, and we need to learn about it. As the subject of inclusion, health, and well-being is rising up on the agenda, well, this is the basis of it, yeah. and this is this is another reason why it's important.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we've um, we, we're going to talk about the BRE office, the office project that we filmed, and and again, listeners yeah. and and watchers can can uh, Google um, the BRE office project and the Journal of Biophilic Design, and you'll see the video that we we recorded actually in the, this biophilic office, which was is a sort of an experiment, um, you know, a successful experiment actually um, yeah. to to, yeah. To, to, uh, to design a biophilic office. Um, but oh, can we just can we can we just sort of like cycle back to before. Lockdown before this like yeah. COVID um, crisis, um, when there was a really um, cacophonous. You know, have you got an example of a of a really bad office design, or you know, anything <laughs> that, you know that you've come across that you think yeah. we really don't want to go back to that? Um, and then we can kind of like move on to like we've got yeah. an opportunity here. That's kind of where I'm trying to sort of say, well, we've we've been in a situation mm-hmm. where it was like this, and actually we do have an opportunity now to design better and to entice our workforce back as well. So maybe Mm -hmm. you can kind of sort of set the scene to say kind of what you've seen before when people were in the office.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I might be able to sum this up relatively easy. Uh, A lot of what we saw before, we saw one size fits all. Yeah. Big open plan spaces that didn't give a lot of choice. Mm. Remember, uh, also, when when we're, we're talking about people, we're talking about adaptability. We're talking about uh, f- flexibility and change. And we should have workplaces and workspaces that reflect that. Uh, and so in the past, there were one-size-fits-all solutions with very little regard to individual needs. And perhaps what the lockdown has done for many people, and I think the Leisman, uh, the Leisman Home Study data reflects this, when we were in our home environments, we had control to, to a great degree. Many, many did, not all, not all, but many did had a lot of control. So if I'm working at my kitchen table, and it gets noisy or someone's, maybe somebody's mowing the lawn, I go upstairs and I work in a bedroom or I work in a private office if I have one. Uh, we have we have a lot of control over, over, over uh, our work. Um, and I think moving back into the new or the offices post pandemic, we're going to have to accommodate that.
0: Yeah.
1: It was a freedom that we'd been given and I don't think it's gonna be taken away too easily. Mm. Yet the freedom and choice is what's necessary for a good acoustic solution
0: yeah absolutely yeah yeah, so, I, mean, maybe, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say maybe we could sort of talk a little bit about the the biophilic office I mean I'm going to encourage people to to go so they can they can find out more about it, but just so that people just to give people an idea of what what they might be looking at um if you can explain what the concept was behind it, please.
1: Yeah, so the beauty of the biophilic office. Actually, I'm going to refer again to Leisman. I can't help, yeah. I can't help that with their home study, because I think one of the one of the primary uh, findings in all of that is is this recognition that actually the home was providing an awful lot of those control elements. And around acoustics in particular, so the ability to concentrate, the ability to you know, just sort of get on with the tasks that I need to do without interruption, we saw that in that data. And what we can learn from that is perhaps what aspects of the home environment were conducive to supporting the type of work that people need to do. So how can, the office be more like the home, and I think what was happening with I think what what uh, a, a part of what we were trying to do with that B R E the biophilic office project was, it was it was actually a house. <laughs> it was essentially a, a, a house, a zero bills house. So from a sustainability perspective, it was the aspiration to, you know, how do you have how, how do you create zero bills? How do you build um, with the most sustainable materials and looking at flexibility and longevity. And, and then what we were able to do is, well, actually create an office in a home, yeah. which most of us have now. <laughs> but but I think it, it played on this these concepts of China taking the best of both of those worlds, yeah. and then overlaying them um, and bringing in the biophilic elements. So so looking at the aspects of design that embrace and understand the principles. Of Biophilia, these you know, some these drivers, these survival drivers that I was talking about earlier—the way human beings evolved, uh, our, the way that our senses respond—you um, know—from a from a survival perspective. So we were able to look at the you know, lighting natural daylighting, as well as some of the some of the the um, the biorhythms and the aspects of the way human beings respond to to light the acoustics and and the importance of getting the acoustics right mainly in that space because it was it was a bit smaller was reducing those echoes so reducing the uh, the reflections that can cause a disorientation as to where sounds are coming from so we we're able to do that and and bringing nature in yeah yeah. This is really this is that that important and, and nature not just the plants not just the greenery not just what we see but what we hear what we feel mm-hmm. what we smell yeah yeah and embracing embracing in a kind of a a, a multi sensory approach.
0: Yeah, I think that was one of the things that I really picked up when I when we was down there and was filming was that with you know with the patterns and the textures there was like obviously natural wood things but also there was a dynamic aspect like the dynamic lighting you just touched on and and like the the even the temperature of the the desk could change so you could make it yeah. warmer or, or or colder depending on your own personal so it was human centric. Mm. But it would also be dynamic, which is again, if we're in nature, there is that change, there is that dynamic change yeah. and, and having all the you know the big windows and that kind of stuff. So if people are listening, I'm actually going to put the link on the um podcast spiel, but I'm gonna put it also on the journal of uh under podcasts and under mm-hmm. under this um interview with you so people can can find it quickly from there. But um, we will talk about that in more depth another time. And um, and I do want to just touch on and I do want a separate podcast with you on this and where we are this is part of the series that we're going to do and um, but actually what you know what by good biophilic solutions would be um in in an, in an office but i mean maybe you could just touch on a, on a few now that you think would make what you know good biophilic um design solutions would be for to make to make offices better for workers and users in the space
1: so do you mean from a broad biophilic or from an acoustic perspective
0: from an acoustic perspective yeah, it, yeah essentially yeah
1: yeah, and I think so so first and foremost foremost is coming from the position of okay what are the benefits of outdoor acoustic environments? We have to look at that. So we have to then figure out how can we mimic the best of the outdoor environment and bring that inside. Yeah. We don't want to <laughs> we don't want to replicate thunder, really loud thunderstorms that frighten everybody. <laughs> you know, that sort of how can we take the best of our, of our natural surroundings and then mimic that? And one of the things that we, that, that we, we have to do, as I mentioned before, is we have, to, uh, we have to get the right levels of absorption in the space, the right levels of diffusion in the space. So absorbing sounds, but also breaking up sounds. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that we create a, um, a, a, kind of reduce the amount of reflections in that space first and foremost a lot of the a lot of the baseline measurements that are used against materials as far as the best absorption is an open window because it's the outside it's the atmosphere it's the best absorber so we can think about we can think about uh, how we can best create that that ultimate absorber in, inside so that's one thing the other thing is we start to think about natural sounds we do have to be careful because not everyone's going to respond to sounds in the same way. So, uh, but one thing, and, and some of the research we could talk about, we'll talk about this in, in more depth later, is the uh, the use of water sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of a lot of research uh, has looked at which sounds, which nature sounds, seem to. Um, be most receptive in a positive way by most people. And it, it, and it's water sounds and different babbling brook sounds and, and, and water fountains. Um, one of the key aspects though, if you want to introduce those into the environment is where they sit on the landscape, mm-hmm. because it's important that if you're going to mimic nature that you don't have your water sounds coming from up above not unless you want to give the sense that you've got a, a waterfall <laughs> that's way up high. Yeah, so so that so the location on the landscape matters, okay. uh, the intensity of the sound, the volume of the sound, and also the visual. Because it isn't natural for us to hear water inside. So we have to make sure that we're telling people visually that this is okay, it's water. So it's either a real water feature or you have a, you have a visual somewhere. Uh, and then, 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 that way we don't interpret it as a leaky is a leaky pipe or a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna fly like
0: mass exodus in the middle of the office yeah
1: so, yeah, yeah, yeah sort of like, oh, five five minutes. because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> consciously i know i'm fun. in an office yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I in an office, so yeah, yeah it's well, so, yeah.
0: so like the visual having the visual representation around you as well so like that like dynamic video or something like that as well or just a visual or something you know i think it's a it's a really good idea um, and i'm really looking forward to talking about that about the sort of different solutions and i mean for me i love birdsong and i love wind in the trees I love that for me that's a real um a, a real good you know, it just brings me down. It just quietens me. It sort of, you know, makes me feel, it puts me in my happy place. If you know what I mean, and I can, I mean, I've always got my door open here constantly. Yeah. Even if it's freezing cold, I'm sitting here with like jumpers and blankets on, like I'm in like some kind of open top 1950s car, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah. I love it. I just love it, and it just really, really is. And and like you just said, it's like the ultimate absorber is to open the door, open the window to let that sound in or let the let the sound out, let the reverberations. <laughs> out so that nature absorbs it. I think that's just really cool. And I really look forward to talking about more how that works and, and why mm. that's good and, and stuff. Well, thanks very much. And um, really, so then the final question that I ask everybody in the end of these podcasts is kind of this, uh, this magic question, this sort of fantasy question, which you know, which one day might come true. But if you could paint the world uh, you know, with a magic brush of biophilia, what would it look like? Oh,
1: I actually, I really love this question. The magic brush would paint the world uh, in such a way that where nature begins, um, or where that the blending of nature and architecture becomes seamless. And we're already seeing this. There's some brilliant designs. I think it's Lead 8. There's an architectural practice um, in, I think they're in uh, Hong Kong. And they are doing some amazing work, bringing nature and buildings to, and together uh, where you get all of the safety and all of the positive benefits of the inside blended with all of the wonderful aspects of an outside environment. Um, and I think that that's where it would be where our, where our architecture and, our, and, and nature just blend beautifully everywhere, in cities, in the countryside, in our houses, in our hospitals, in our offices, in our schools, that that would be ideal.
0: Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.